Hey everyone, welcome into the College Age Movement podcast. Hope that you are having a good week. We are in part seven of our series entitled Mark. Last week we talked about communion, we talked about how we can engage with it, how we can avoid it becoming something that is just done out of habit, and some different ways that we can step into conversation and thankfulness with Jesus. And this week we're going to pick up right where we left off in Mark chapter 14, So after the Last Supper, we find Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we're going to be Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 38. It says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a couple different things that I'd love to pull out of this specific passage. The first one would be this. Stillness does not equal laziness. Jesus asks the disciples to sit still, but he also is asking them to keep watch. There is action to be had in the stillness. So often, we consider the opposite to be true. We think that moments of waiting are moments to put in less effort. And I think the reason that most of us associate stillness with less effort is because we don't really like waiting. We like to be busy. We like to be busy physically. We like to be busy mentally. We even like to be busy spiritually, that we think that busyness equals productivity. And what we have to understand is that busyness does not equal productivity. Busyness often Uh, would get in the way of us being productive in our relationships, in our spiritual journey with Jesus. Whatever it may be, busyness is often more of a a wall to be worked through than it is something that is actually propelling us towards productivity. Because on the other hand, we would associate busyness with effectiveness, right? I know that at least I would. I don't know why I do this, but so often I'll be in conversations with people and they'll say, how are you doing And instead of responding like, oh, I'm doing really well, or oh, you know, it's been a rough week, or whatever, I'll just respond, oh, it's really busy, just really busy. It's not really an answer to the how are you, but it is an answer that I get so often. And what we have to understand is that busyness is often not a good thing to be caught in. And we, we can't be people who just think like busy is, is some kind of elevated status. So often I'll, I'll try to communicate to people that I'm busy because I want them to think that I'm important. And it doesn't matter. Like our culture would probably say, yeah, if you're really busy, if your calendar's full, if you've got a bunch of meetings, it must mean that you're really important. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means that you're probably not great at time management. And so what we have to understand is that busyness does not equal productivity, that often we need to be people who are willing to wait. Because the disciples in this instance didn't understand that while they were waiting, Jesus was working. And what Jesus probably was saying is, hey, sit here, I'm going to go pray. The insinuation would be, hey, why don't you pray too? Keep watch, pray. 
pray as I pray. So while the the disciples were in their moment of waiting, Jesus was working. And I think we need to be people who realize that often Jesus is working in the midst of our waiting. He is working on our behalf, and he is working on behalf of those in our lives. And one of the things that I struggle with is believing that extended seasons of waiting mean that Jesus has forgotten about me, or maybe he's forgotten about my circumstances. Like That's my assumption, is that in those moments of waiting— I just assume like, okay, well, I set like a time frame on this. I usually it's like five minutes, but even if I give him 24 hours or whatever, it's like I set this time frame for Jesus to do something about the situation, to do something about the circumstance. But he's working on his time frame, not mine. And so I just assume that Jesus has forgotten about me. But that's not true. Jesus is often working in the midst of our waiting. See, the challenge for you and I is making sure that our seasons of waiting aren't seasons of stagnancy. If we can understand that there is purpose in waiting, everything shifts. If we can understand that there is purpose in the stillness, everything changes. Waiting with purpose is a process, undoubtedly. But waiting with purpose will prepare us. It's a process, but it will prepare us. So we need to be people who are waiting with purpose, that in the midst of the waiting season, we would be people who are having so much purpose, and we are doing things with intention. There is such a theme of purposeful, purposeful waiting throughout Scripture. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, all of them had to wait for the promises of God, and they did. So there's purpose in our individual waiting, and I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse, and this is the best example that I can give, is so many people are like, oh, I can't wait to be married. It's like, okay, well, until you do get married, work. Have purpose. Make sure that the person that your spouse gets to marry is marrying someone who's been preparing and working and being intentional in the waiting season, not somebody who's waiting to become a husband or waiting to become a wife. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, I guess I need to put on some work now. No, we need to be people who have purpose in our waiting. There's also purpose in our collective waiting. We're waiting for the return of Jesus. But Jesus didn't say, sit around, and then when I come back, like, everything's going to be fine. No, he said, like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be back. Like, but in the meantime, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He wanted there to be purpose in the waiting season. So individually, we have purpose in our waiting season. Collectively, we have purpose in our waiting season because what we do in our waiting seasons will be massively impactful on our outcomes. What we do in our waiting seasons will be massively impactful on our outcomes. The second point this week, we must actively fight against our humanity. Jesus says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you ever felt like you're literally being pulled in two different directions when it comes to right and wrong, right? We've all been in those situations where you're like in the midst of it and you're kind of having your devil and angel on your shoulder moment. And you're like, man, on one hand, I want to do this. But on the other hand, I feel like I'm being pulled away from doing that. And there's this tension. And sometimes we can physically feel the tension within our whole, our souls and our spirits and even in our bodies to say, I want to do this, but I know I should do this. You see, we have to be people who decide whether we want to be directed by the fullness that God provides, or if we want to be people who are directed by the brokenness that our humanity provides. Like, if I'm going to have a captain of my life, I want it to be Jesus. I don't want it to be my own humanity, because my humanity is going to lead me to really broken places. Here's the thing. Our flesh speaks loudly about the immediate but God speaks quietly about the eternal. Our, our flesh speaks loudly about the immediate, the temporary, but God speaks quietly about the eternal. 
And I think that we need to have the capacity to stop and ask ourselves the question, how will I feel about this decision a week from now? How will I feel about this decision a year from now? It's dangerous to be driven by what is temporary. Ultimately, we need to have eternal perspective. But even if if we don't have eternal perspective yet, even if we're able to step back and look at a season instead of a moment, our lives will change because we will look at the collective, not just the individual moments. Because in the individual moments, some decisions might make sense. But if we step back and we look at the grand scheme of things, we know I'm not going to be super happy about this decision six months from now. I'm not going to be super happy about this decision a year from now. We need to be people who are willing to step back and look at it a different way. Another thing that I love about this story is I think that it's one that actually shows that Jesus was fully human. If you grew up in church, like you kept hearing, just like I did, like Jesus was fully God and fully man, and all those things. I'm like, yeah, but he was perfect. So like, it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around Jesus being fully human. But it says that he was driven with sorrow to pray that his father would take this cup, being the crucifixion, away from him. There was anguish. There was distress. He was troubled. It was just so true to to our human tendencies to just feel. Uh, maybe a little bit of fear and like, oh, Lord, like, would you take this? I'm, I'm scared of, of experiencing the most traumatic death that anybody's ever experienced. I'm, I'm scared to take on the sins of the world, past, present, and future, like all of those things. And he he's driven with sorrow to pray to his father. But I love, it says, that, it says and yet he says, your will, not mine. If you take this from me, please take it from me. But it's not about my will. It's about yours. So a question that we can ask ourselves is, are we willing to put his will before our own? See, selfless service isn't something that I think most of us are very good at. I know that I'm not. I like to do things if they are convenient or if they are somehow beneficial to me. But if we consider ourselves followers of Jesus, and even if you're listening to this and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I think a key posture that we can have is the understanding that everything isn't about me. That means I'm going to be asked to do things that I wouldn't probably choose to do on my own. And that means that I will probably be uncomfortable at times. And I promise you that you will not grow in your comfort zone. So you need to be somebody who is stretched. You need to be somebody who's willing to get uncomfortable. And that means that we have to have faith that his will is for our benefit, that his will is for the benefit of others in our lives that we would understand that his will is good. So the, the phrase, your will, not mine, needs to be something that we, we utter so often that we understand like, hey, my will is going to put me in pretty broken places, but your will is going to take me to really good places. And I also think that it's really important to point out that his will is not always going to be directly opposed to ours. Like He loves us, and there are desires and dreams and passions that he has placed within us, and he might need us to just shift a little bit, but they line up. He's not just going to say, you want this, sucker? Like You're going to go this way. That's not how it works. So following Jesus, we need to understand this. Following Jesus isn't about constant martyrdom and forever disappointment that we didn't get what we wanted. It's just about a constant willingness to pivot towards him when our desires are in conflict with his. And sometimes we have to pivot hard. Sometimes it's it's a, a 180 like turnaround. And sometimes it's just a two degree shift. Say like, hey, you're on track. You're so close. I just need you to do it this way. I need you to speak with this tone. I need you to talk to this person instead of this person. It's just our willingness to pivot towards him when our desires are in conflict 
with his. The story goes on to say, Mark chapter 4, verses 39 through 40. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. The next point is Jesus doesn't hesitate to give us another chance. Jesus was so patient with the disciples over and over again. They proved to be less than perfect, and yet he gives them multiple chances. If you grew up in church, maybe you have heard the phrase, God of the second chance. And while that sounds corny sometimes, I know I grew up and I started to hear that, and I was like, oh my gosh, that is so annoying. But I believe that it's true. Jesus never stops giving us the opportunity to succeed. He will even set us back up in the same circumstances. I had something that happened to me my freshman year of college. I was with uh, a friend of mine, and he was what I'd just call like a baby believer. He was just new. He was brand new to his faith. He was in the infancy stages of his faith. It was only a couple weeks fresh. And, and maybe you've been there too, where you make a decision to follow Jesus. You surrender your life, and then all of a sudden you think that there's not going to be anything hard, that Jesus is going to make all your decisions for you, that you couldn't make any of the stupid mistakes that you made before Jesus. That there's just this like unspoken thing where we're like, yeah, like now I'm good. Like I'm following Jesus, so that means I'm not, I'm not going to make any, any mistakes. And that's not true at all. And so we're hanging out, and uh, we're we're uh, around some other people, and um, he gets an opportunity to uh, make a mistake with with a girl that we were hanging out with, and he does. He makes a mistake, and then he makes like fifty more mistakes in the next twenty four hours, and just the way that he speaks, and, and just all these different things. And I remember the next day, you know, he comes to me, and he's so frustrated, and he's just like, "Man, I." I surrender my life to Jesus. I've been reading my Bible, all these things, and yet I made the same stupid mistake that I've always made. And he he's frustrated. And I totally understand why he's frustrated. And we're having a conversation, and then I utter it. I, I say the thing that I just got so annoyed with people saying, hey, man, God's a God of second chances. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, I just said it. And he blows me off, and he's like, whatever. And I was like, hey, man, you just wait. He's going to give you another chance at this. And I was really confident when I said that in the moment. And then I was like, nah, maybe, maybe I shouldn't want that God gives him another chance in this specific circumstance. Like, I don't know if he's ready. I don't know if he's going to be able to make the right decision. And I started to question whether or not I should have been so confident in telling him that. But guess what? The next weekend, same thing happens, different girl. Uh, he's given an opportunity, but this time he makes the right decision. And he comes to me with tears in his eyes. And he's like, what you said is true. He said, I put in another week of just seeking the heart of God, and I made the right decision this time, and I cannot be more proud of myself for making the decision that I didn't make last time, that I protected her, and I honored her, and I didn't do what I did last week. And he was so excited. And I think that we need to understand that he is a God of God. He is a God of second chances, that he doesn't work on a one-strike-in-your-out system. But so often, what we do is we disqualify ourselves before we ever give God the opportunity to give us another chance. So let's not do that. Let's understand that he's a God of second chances and that we can pay him back by being willing to step into those chances. I also love that this passage says uh, they did not know what to say to him. That he comes back and he's like, seriously, you guys? And they didn't know what to say to him. I've been there. I don't know how many times I've been there. And you've probably been there too, where you're just like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I would say to try to justify myself. Jesus comes back. They're sleeping again. History's about to change. And he's just like, cool, you guys. Well, here comes the angry mob that is going to crucify me. Like, remember when I said, keep watch? You didn't do that. You slept. It would be a real bummer if that's where the story ended. 
because the next set of verses talks about Judas, one of his 12, leading a mob of people to come and pull Jesus into trial to eventually crucify him for you and I. The disciples are scared. Peter denies Jesus. Everybody runs. There's, there's just so many things that happen. That's not where the story ends. Because even after all that, Jesus uses them. Even after all of their failures and all of their fear, they change the world. And I don't know where you're at today, but I can confidently say that you have not failed too many times for God to use you. There's a pastor that I follow. His name is Rich Wilkerson Jr. And he made a statement that I think it's important for us to grasp as we're talking about failure, as we're talking about being people who make mistakes and get second chances, and it is this, is that failure is not final, it's formative. Failure is not final, it is formative. I would challenge you tonight to look at failures as kindling needed for success. That we would look at them as kindling to put on the fire that is eventually going to get lit, that is eventually going to be something that changes our city, that changes our families, that changes our relationship, that changes our world. It's kindling. Failure is kindling. That's not a roadblock, it's a building block. It's a building block on which we will build up the greatest things in our lives. We just have to be people who are willing to learn from failure. Nobody goes from success to success to success learning a ton along the way. Failure is formative. Failure is where we learn the greatest lesson. So as Jesus gives us more chances, let's repay him at the very least with attempts. Sometimes we will fail again. But in our pursuit of him, eventually we will get where he wants us to be. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to the College Age Movement podcast. We love you guys so much. If you are in Billings, we always want to extend an invitation to come on Tuesday nights, 7 o'clock at Faith Chapel. If you have any uh, questions about what's going on at College Age Movement, head over to our Instagram page at College Age MVMT or our Facebook page. We love you guys. We hope that you are doing well, and we hope that you continue to get something out of the College Age Movement podcast.